The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin, your host, and today I will be talking with Dr. Ned Holstein, who is the founder and the current chairman of the board of the National Parents Organization. The National Parents Organization is the nation's largest shared parenting advocacy organization. You can find it online at nationalparentsorganization.org. Dr. Holstein is a graduate of Harvard University, received his master's degree in psychology from MIT, and earned his medical degree from Mount Sinai School of Medicine, where he has also served as a teacher and a researcher. So, welcome, Dr. Holstein. Thank you, Virginia, and please call me Ned. Okay, I will. So, I know the organization that you founded, the National Parents Organization, recently came out with an unprecedented report, the Shared Parenting Report Card. What does that report card tell us about? Well, first let me tell your audience what we're talking about when we talk about shared parenting. By shared parenting, we're talking about the arrangements for children after parents have separated or divorced. It's a sad subject, but it's really a terribly important subject. And the reason it's so important is because about half of our kids are growing up apart from one of their biological parents. Half our kids. And, in fact, when you look at where the troubled kids come from, the kids who are getting in trouble with gangs, the substance abuse, the teenage pregnancy, the dropping out of school, the underachievement, the behavioral disorders, etc., those kids are coming disproportionately from the single-parent families uh, where they have lost contact or have very little contact with one of their biological parents. So shared parenting is our solution. And that solution is that when parents separate or divorce, that children should have lots and lots of time with both parents. And it's really a simple recipe because children love both their parents. If you ask the average five-year-old, which parent would you like to be taken away from, they're going to burst into tears. So why are we taking these poor kids away from one of their parents when we elect one of them to be a custodial parent and the other one, to be a so-called non-custodial parent who usually gets marginalized in the process. I know this is an emotional topic for many people, but if we're going to do what the children want us to do and what they need us to do, we're going to have a lot more shared parenting than we've had in the past. So it's not the question you asked me, but um, maybe if you uh, want to build on that or just go back to the yeah. first question, I'd be happy to yeah. talk with you more about it. 
Oh, that's a fine place to start to talk about what we really mean by parenting. It brings to mind something. I, I have a friend who is very opposed to using the terms custody and visitation. You know, kids should not be in custody. Prisoners should be in custody. And parents <laughs> right. shouldn't be visiting. Yes. Parents shouldn't be visiting their kids. You know, they should be parenting their kids. Exactly. So some, some states have moved on to use other language about parenting plans rather than the terms that are still used in my state, custody and visitation. Yep. And so, in most states, it's still called custody and visit, visitation. Right, right. So you're saying you have reason to believe, and I think you're right, that a lot of kids would be much better off if they were seeing a great deal more of their second parent, the parent who is not the person they live with most of the time. And there was this uh, shared parenting report card you did, and I don't know what you did. So tell me about it. Well, we looked at the statutes of all 50 states plus the, uh, plus the District of Columbia. And we asked the question, looking at the language of the statute about custody, we'll use the old-fashioned word for now, um, to what degree do they encourage what we call shared parenting, by which we mean lots of time with each parent? Or do they discourage it? Or are they neutral? Or are they silent in their language about what the judge uh, should order uh, when if we assume that both parents are fit and there's been no domestic violence, because those are important special circumstances that would, in most cases, say we should not do shared parenting. But going back to the usual case, where both parents are fit and there has not been domestic violence, um, uh, what do the statutes say in the 50 states? And unfortunately, what we found is that, but I have to say we weren't surprised, that the states... Uh, the, the language of the statutes is very old-fashioned. It's still talking about assigning custody to one parent and making the other parent a non-custodial parent. And in fact, what we looked at when we looked at this, we saw that um, no states received a, a grade of A. Only eight states received a grade of B, and uh, two states received a grade of F. And the rest were C's and D's, more, more D's than any other grade. The, over, the overall national grade point average was 1.63 on a 4.0 scale. And that's pretty poor. That and is pretty it, poor. What were the criteria that you used for rating? Well, simply whether the uh, statute uh, uh, specifically said that shared parenting was an option, or whether it specifically uh, called for uh, custody by one parent, or whether it um, went further in the right direction and said that not only said that shared parenting was an option, but that shared parenting was the preferred option. So there was a series of uh, criteria of, of those sorts. I see. Okay, and uh, the country did not do well. <laughs> the country definitely did not do well. Um, the best states were um, uh, Alaska and Arizona, but even those two states only received a B. Um, and the worst statutes were found in New York State and Rhode Island. The New York State statute doesn't even allow for shared parenting, but further, uh, more recently, one of the high courts 
uh, made a ruling and said, oh, yes, that's allowable. So, you know, judges can um, fill in the gaps sometimes when the statute has holes in it. Uh, but in the New York State statute doesn't even allow for shared parenting the way it's written. Wow, that's astonishing to me. I learn a lot doing this show. So, would you like to say well, anything else about the significance of the study, or have we covered that pretty well? No one else has done this study before. I think the significance is that, uh, I hate to say this, but at a personal level, people care about this issue intensely. But at a public level, it's not on the radar screen of discussion. Candidates for office are not talking about it. Uh, it's not in the op-ed pages. It's not in the editorial pages. You don't hear it on the cable news networks. People are not talking about this. And it's the strongest determinant of how our children are going to do. And we're talking about half the children. So there is this disconnect between the intensity that people feel on a personal level and the fact that nobody is talking about this at the public level. Now, how do I connect that to your question? The significance is that nobody ever did this study before. We were the first ones to do it. And generally, when something isn't studied, it's because society doesn't care about it very much. When, you, when, when studies start to be done, it's a signal that somebody does care about it. It sounds like we now have an organization of people who care about it very much. Well, we do, but we're always looking for new members. So uh, anyone who's listening should go to www.nationalparentsorganization.org. That's all one word, no punctuation, nationalparentsorganization.org. And uh, you'll see a tab where you can sign up, and it doesn't commit you to anything except to get our e-newsletter once a week. And... Um, Around this time of year, of course, we'll ask you for money, but you don't have to give it. Okay. I know that uh, from talking with you earlier, I know that this was also a big year for research about shared parenting and a big year for organizations coming out and making statements about whether shared parenting would be a good idea or not. And you're much closer to that research and to those statements than I am. Would you like to tell us about that? I'd love to tell you, tell you about it. Although um, you being a professional person dealing in matters such as mediation, I have a feeling you know more about this research than you're letting on. But uh, be that as it may, um, yes, this was, 2014 was a huge year in terms of the child development research and uh, the conclusions as to what is best for children after separation or divorce of parents. If you had asked the so-called experts 40 years ago, they would have told you that you need that a child needs to have one custodial parent who has the great majority of the time, one set of rules, one place to live, one place to put down their books, that the custodial parent should get to decide how much time the child would spend with the other parent. Everything should be in the hands of that one parent. And not surprisingly... That led and has led to enormous, bitter custody battles. Who wants to be on the losing end of that proposition? In 2014, three different independent large groups of researchers concluded that shared parenting is the best arrangement for children in most cases. And there are definitely exceptions. I already named the two biggest exceptions. That would be if one or both of the parents is unfit 
or if there has been domestic violence. But in the usual plain vanilla case, the research of the last 40 years is now showing overwhelmingly children want shared parenting and children do better when they get shared parenting. Can you say anything about the kinds of indications that they're doing better? Are we talking about grades in school or not having early unintended pregnancies? When you look All at children, or human beings in general for that matter, there are two, two basic kinds of measures uh, of outcome. One measure is how's the person feeling, uh, how's, how's the person feeling about themselves and about their lives, and what's their mood. And the other kind of measure is more objective measures of how are they doing. So the researchers have looked at all these kinds of measures. And the children do better with shared parenting, whether you're asking them whether they're depressed, whether they're happy, whether they are angry, whether they feel that they have a good future in their lives. All those measures of how one feels come out better among the children with shared parenting. Then when you look at how are they actually doing, likewise, all the measures come out better. They're, they do better in school. There's less dropout. They have higher grades. They uh, have more extracurricular activities. They, as they get older, they have less truancy, less delinquency. They have less running in gangs, less arrests, less encounters with the laws. The girls, even, even when we get up into the teenage years, and the girls have less teenage pregnancy. So, and I didn't even mention substance abuse, whether it be alcohol or drugs, there's less of that too. So whether you're measuring actual outcomes, that is to say uh, achievements and such, or whether you're measuring how they feel, kids who've had shared parenting do better. That's impressive. That yeah, is a you know, long here's list. The, here's of... the good side of it. You, you, can, you know, every coin has two sides. You can look at the bad side, or you can look at the good side. The negative side says, oh, my goodness, we have all of these children, and they're not doing well, and uh, we have so much substance abuse among children, we have so much delinquency, we have so, much drop, so many kids dropping out of school, we have so many kids with behavioral problems, and it's been impervious to all of the great society programs that we've been running for 50 years. That's, an, that's the negative side of the coin. But look at the optimistic side of the coin. The researchers are telling us we have a means of helping children, and it's really simple. All we have to do is re-educate the courts and the judges to allow these children to have two parents instead of one parent after the parents separate or divorce. And if we do all, if we do that, we're going to we are likely to have very great improvements in all of the kinds of measures I just mentioned. And the best thing about this is it's free to the taxpayer. It does not cost a single dime to do this. So the optimistic side of this coin is the researchers are showing the way for us. We can greatly help tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, actually millions of children in our country with, by a simple stroke of the pen in each of the 50 states and re-educating the judges. What do you think is holding that back? Well, there are two things holding it back. Um, I'll tell you the less sexy one first. Um, the first thing that's holding it back is just that the law changes slowly by design. The, pers- the judge who's making a uh, custody decision today and awarding most of the time to one parent and is telling the other parent you can see the child every other weekend and that's it, 
that judge, let's say that judge graduated from law school 20 years ago, so that would be what, 1994. When that judge was in law school in 1994, that law student at that time was reading legal precedents, that is, cases that had been decided in the past that tell judges what they're supposed to do. And those precedents were written 15 or 20 years before that. So the, the law student reading this in 1994 is reading precedents from 1984 or 1974. And uh, those precedents were determined by what the experts were teaching in 1964 and 1954, back when we had Leave it to Beaver and Ward and June <laughs> Cleaver and so on. It was a different world back then. And they were being taught one parent, one custodial parent, one place to live, and all the other things I mentioned before. And so the judge who is making uh, rulings today is in many ways being influenced by things that were being uh, taught 50 years ago. And that's just how the law is. It's designed to be slow-moving. But at this point in time, we need to do something about it if we're going to rescue our children. Now, there's another reason, and it's, it's the sexier reason. <clears throat> it's the one that gets your blood bo boiling a little bit. And that is that you have special interest groups who don't want things to change because they benefit from them. And uh, so who are these special interest groups? Well, unfortunately, the bar associations, that means the professional associations of attorneys, uh, are among the biggest opponents of changing the law and changing the, 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 um, cha changing the practice of the courts towards shared parenting. So why are they against it? Um, I hate to say this, but there are some people who feel that they're against it because they, they benefit financially from parents having big custody fights. Uh, there's really big bucks involved if the family has any money. And uh, uh, I'm not sure whether I agree or not with that formulation, but I have to say there's a good bit of evidence to support it. Um, there are also domestic violence groups who, for whatever reason, even though people like me say, well, we wouldn't do shared parenting when there really is domestic violence. It doesn't seem to mollify them. They still say we're against it. And I haven't been able yet to figure out why. Uh, there's also certain women's groups uh, who say the same thing. And we say, but wait a minute. From the day you were founded, you said you wanted men to do more work with the kids. And that's what we're proposing. We're proposing for men and women to be equal. From the day you were founded, you believed in, in gender equality. So that's what we're proposing. We're proposing gender equality. And they're still against it. And I can't figure that one out either. <clears throat> but I do have to say. I, I have an idea about that one because I spoke with a group one time about people who were getting ready for their own divorces. And I talked yeah. about the notion of shared parenting. And the women in the room were horrified because they thought they had the right to the kids. So if we're talking about shared parenting, we're going to be taking something away from them. Um, and we're going to go to break. Okay. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state. 
with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Follow us on Twitter at VoiceAmericaTRN. Get the lowdown on guests, new shows, and your favorites. That's VoiceAmericaTRN. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, Please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radioshow at com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin, and today I'm talking with Dr. Ned Holstein, who is the founder of the National Parents Organization, which you can find online at nationalparentsorganization.org. So I'm going to take you, Ned, back over a couple of things that we talked about a little bit earlier and just get some additional detail. So we mentioned that there were some leading child development groups that have now come out with statements in favor of shared parenting, in favor of courts and everybody else getting on board with the plan that kids should get to have lots and lots of times with each of their parents. What organizations are those? What well, child one of them is called AF. I won't bother you with the long name that goes with that. If someone Googles AFCC, they'll find it right away. And uh, they're quite a large organization. They, uh, they convened 30 or so of their experts and wrote a report early in 2014 in which they endorse shared parenting. They have a lot of ifs, ands, and buts, as we do too, but basically they like it, and they feel that it's what works best for kids. Uh, the second one was centered around a researcher at the University of Texas named Richard Warshak, W-A-R-S-H-A-K. Warshak published a uh, journal, uh, published an art- a research article uh, in the journal that is published by the American Psychological Association. And um, he looked at this huge amount of research literature going back 30 or 40 years, concluded that shared parenting is the best, for children in most circumstances, and 110 experts 
from around the world, researchers and professionals, signed on to the conclusions of his article. So that's another 110 uh, prominent people from around the world. And the third one is a, an organization that is based in Europe called the International Council on Shared Parenting. It's based in Germany. It has represent, representation from about 20, 20 countries or so, most of them in Europe, uh, but also extending uh, to North America, also to the Middle East with Israel, and so on. And uh, they held a conference this summer, convened about 100 of their experts, and reached the same conclusion. So this is a watershed year. In the past, it's been equivocal. Well, we think it's better. Well, we think it might be better. Well, the research has got to be improved a little bit. This year, three major organizations all came out and said, this is best for children. That's impressive. And that's a hopeful sign. I am going to tell the audience, AFCC is the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts. And that's an organization that has influence and has attorneys in it. So if they are advocating this sort of change in policy, I think that gives us cause for optimism. I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so. Uh, we, we are... We are I hate to say it this way, but the family courts are, are actively hurting children. They don't mean to be doing that. Uh, but it's just, look, 100 years ago, we used to, or maybe a little longer, we used to lock mentally ill people up in what were called sanatoriums and, um, uh, and lock them up and often chain them up, and we thought we were doing them a favor. Um, it, was, it was benighted, and today... It's not what, what's happening in family courts with children is not that bad, but it's still benighted, and it's causing an enormous amount of heartache, and it's ruining lives. Yeah, and before break, we were talking about why it's difficult to change laws now that we have evidence that for most kids you know, with the exceptions that you've mentioned, shared parenting is going to produce a better result. It's still hard to change the laws. And we mentioned groups that are making it, actively making it difficult. And sadly, that seems to include bar associations in a number of states. Yes, it's true. And uh, bar associations are very strong politically. They give lots of campaign contributions to... Um, uh, to state legislators, not the ones in Washington, but the ones in the capital of your state. Most people can't even tell you who their state representative is or their state senator is, uh, and certainly aren't giving money to that person for their campaigns, but the uh, lawyers in the bar associations are, and so they are very influential. Uh, and uh, for some reason, that escapes me, uh, the family law attorneys seem to be considered experts on child development. Now, I never saw a law school curriculum yet that included a course on child development. Um, I've seen courses on bankruptcy and contracts and evidence uh, and so on. I've <laughs> never seen a course on child development, and yet I can't tell you how many times I've been on a radio or television show, and there's a family law attorney sitting next to me and speaking as if they actually know what's good for children. Any wow. better than anybody else does. Wow, I had not thought about it exactly that way. You have a good point. And I have heard from a number of attorneys, not 
only from unhappy parents that there are attorneys. Not all attorneys. There are some wonderful attorneys doing practicing family law. But there are some who are very much aware that they benefit from getting parents to fight with each other as much as possible. The lawyers benefit financially from that fight, and it does enormous damage to the kids. Well, I agree. Um, there are some areas of life, um, and certainly some areas of law, where um, the whole economics of it are is based on the economics of it is based on the occasional jackpot. Uh, your everyday case, you you don't make much money at all. You'd never stay in the field if that's all you ever made. But you stay in it because, you know, every every year you have a couple of cases which are big cases, and you make a huge amount of money on those ones. And I think family law is often like that. Uh, on the average case, the people don't have a lot of money, the two parents, so the attorney can't, has no way to make a lot of money. But every now and then somebody comes along, the couple is worth 5 or $10 million, and they have a big fight, and the fight goes on for several years, and the fees are 300000 400000 500000 600000 Sometimes the fees are so high that there's n- nothing left afterwards to divide up between the two parents. And the kids uh, go on and have just been put through a system that is supposed to, uh, supposed to function in, in the best interest of the child. And actually what you've got is two depleted parents who hate each other uh, after such a long fight uh, and have no money to spend on the child. Yeah. I have I have not known lots of millionaires, but I have seen that sort of financial damage even in families with very modest incomes. I knew one pair of parents who went through a custody battle that lasted more than a year, maybe more than two years, and If either one wants to keep it going, the other one gets dragged in. And it ended up that one of these folks had spent more on attorney fees than their gross earnings for a calendar year. Nothing surprising about that. And it is true, by the way, what you just said, that uh, you can say to yourself, look, I don't want to fight. I want to reach a reasonable agreement. Uh, I want uh, I want us to come out of this uh, emotionally intact and financially intact, so we can be good parents for our children. But you're absolutely right. If one parent wants to have a fight, the court does nothing to stop that. And the the one who wants to have a fight starts just files outrageous motions and outrageous complaints, and the court takes each one after the other very seriously, as if there had been no history of extreme behavior by that litigant. Uh, and tries each accusation and each issue, no matter how far-fetched it is. Uh, and it's a nightmare for the other patient. I'm sorry. I'm a the doctor. other. <laughs> it's a nightmare That's for a good one. the other parent. <laughs> and, uh, uh, and they can't escape the claws of this system that drags them into it. Right. It's really a shame. Shared parent, the, the real ultimate irony is, in our view uh, of National Parents Organization, and you can find us at nationalparentsorganization.org. Our view is that these custody battles are unnecessary, that 90 or 95% of all parents are fit parents. They're not perfect parents. Nobody's a a perfect parent. I'm not a perfect parent. I wasn't. Uh, But 
but the vast majority of us are good enough parents, and um, we don't have to have a battle to figure out whether one of the parents is perhaps 5% better than the other parent. It's completely unnecessary. The child loves both the parents. Let the child have both parents. I'm wondering whether you have a plan for what could be the next steps. You've got an organization. You have a cause. We know there are people who care. Are you writing model legislation that might be tried out in five or six different states? What's next? Well, we're trying to build membership because without membership, you cannot get a a new law passed. We're trying to educate judges. Uh, We're trying to get media attention, like today, because people need to know that what's actually happening in the courts can be devastating to children. Uh, and is uh, in, in, even when it's not devastating, it's harmful to huge numbers of them. Um, we're also, of course, uh, bringing lawsuits from time to time uh, in order to establish key points in the law, the so-called test cases. So mm-hmm. we're doing all the usual tools that advocates for social change do. I mean, it doesn't matter what it is you want to improve in our wonderful democratic society, uh, we use the same tools. We use public relations and media. We use lawsuits. We use lobbying and members, membership pressure on decision makers. Those are the usual tools, and we're using the same tools. I see. You and I... I just want to once again say, um, I've mentioned it in passing, but... The reason those tools work is because we actually do live in a democracy. It's a wonderful country for all its faults. This is a shining example. It is a country that is a, whose beacon of light has shone out across the world. I am so proud to be an American, despite the fact that I know very well that we have, we have like any people, we have sinned in the past uh, against other peoples. But uh, compared to the rest of the world, we are a shining beacon, and I'm so proud to be an American. Good point. It's, it's, I'm staying with the thought of shared parenting and thinking back through history a little bit. And I think you maybe have to go back only a couple of hundred years to England or other European countries. Maybe you have to go back farther than that. You don't have to go back that long in, in some other countries. Uh, where the presumption about what's going to happen to the kids if the parents don't work things out was really different. The presumption was that the dad decides. The wife and children are the husband's property. And if he's not getting along with his wife anymore, then she has to go away and he keeps the kids. Correct. I suppose, unless he doesn't want them. And I'm not even sure how historically the courts switched from the notion of dad decides to the tender years doctrine that says these are little kids, little kids should be with their mom, and then if they're with the mom when they're little, it becomes difficult to say, well, now that they're a little older, we should send them to live with their other parent. Yes. I'm not sure how that transition happened or how the tender years doctrine became established. Well, um, it, it happened at the same time as the Industrial Revolution. 
prior to the Industrial Revolution, the vast majority of people were farmers. And so fathers and mothers were both home during the workday. Uh, they were doing different work, but they were both at home. Uh, Dad was out plowing the fields, uh, and Mom typically was working in the home, but Dad, you could look out the door, and there was Dad. Uh, when the Industrial Revolution came along, then Dad was disappearing all day long to a factory. And, uh, and, we, and it had long work hours, and sometimes when he came home, the kids were already asleep, or he was disappearing into a coal mine never saw the light of day. He went out before sunrise and he came home after sunset and he, in, certainly in the winter months, never even saw sun for months on end and didn't see his children very often either for the same reason. And so it began to change then and simultaneous with that was a change in the uh, perception of the roles and the character of men and women. Uh, prior to the Industrial Revolution, uh, believe it or not, during the period of time you referred to when custody automatically went to fathers, which, by the way, we don't support. <laughs> I hope that goes without saying. Uh, during that period of time, fathers were actually looked upon as the moral guardians and the spiritual guardians of children. If children didn't turn out well, it was the father's fault. If children didn't get educated, it was the father's fault. If children grew up into alcoholics, it was the father's fault. Mothers were considered to be weak and spiritually weak and intellectually weak. All these stereotypes, which they're hateful, um, and also I don't want to overstate them because um, they're, they're gradations and degrees, and, uh, and not everybody thought that women, <laughs> women were spiritually and intellectually and morally weak. Um, once the Industrial Revolution came around, women started to be put on a pedestal, and if you look at the poetry of the last 18th century, women are treated as sort of minor goddesses. They're perfect. They're pure. They're the ones who uh, imbue the family with its moral compass. They're the ones who keep men on the straight and narrow. Men are, have inclinations towards evil, but the purity of the pure heart of the virtuous woman keeps them uh, from straying, and etc. And you look at that poetry, and it's it's as overwrought and to modern eyes as ridiculous as the previous notion was that women are spiritually, morally, and intellectually weak. Uh, so that's when the changeover happened and custody started to go automatically to mothers, whereas it used to go automatically to fathers. So there's a, uh, there's a quick little, uh, probably boring discourse on, uh, on the, the, the sort of uh, image of men and the image of women before the Industrial Revolution and then after the Industrial Revolution. That was not boring to me at all. I think that's intriguing. That it, it, it is connected to the changes in roles and the change in family life that happened for an economic reason. And people do seem to like the idea of dividing people into categories. You know, so there'll be some set of characteristics that is associated with being male and some different set of characteristics that's associated with being female, uh, where in reality, there's a lot of overlap. Yes, I, I wish the pendulum could stay in the middle for a while. Uh, when I was a kid, and I hate to say how long ago it was, but it was a while back, and um, uh, I can remember things like, you know, Lyndon Johnson and so on, uh, and before, but when I was a kid, if a marriage failed, uh, the popular notion was it was the, the wife's fault. 
she didn't attend, she didn't uh, she didn't invest enough attention into the marriage she didn't work hard enough to please her husband and all kinds of nonsense like that okay yes that was nonsense but now we're 180 degrees in the other in the other way as a generalization with many exceptions today if a marriage fails it's oh he he's he probably is drinking oh he's philandering oh he's not supporting the family very well oh he's probably a secret abuser Etc. 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 It's flipped, and it's, it's flipped 180 degrees. Can we please recognize the humanity in everybody? We all have strengths. We all have weaknesses. We all sin. We all try to be better, or most of us do. We try to improve who we are as human beings. We try to be fair to our partner, uh, and we try to love our children and raise them correctly. Sometimes we succeed. Sometimes we fail. But we're all human. And uh, if we can just get the pendulum back in the middle, we'd be a lot happier. That sounds like a great place to take a break, and we will be back. News. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Now, back to Family Matters. Welcome back to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin, and I'm talking today with Dr. Ned Holstein from the National Parents Organization 
which you can find online at nationalparentsorganization.org. During the break, Ned and I got into talking about uh, some of the history of how we got to where we are now with expectations about what happens during and after divorce. And you mentioned, Ned, you mentioned a book by someone named Wiseman. Is that correct? Yes. Okay. So uh, apparently this book was influential and created a lot of belief in something that wasn't true about the economic fallout from divorce. Yes, she wrote a very influential book uh, that uh, that that uh, that sort of uh, created the uh, the concept of quote the feminization of poverty, and her book uh, asserted that after divorce men come out rich and women come out impoverished, and uh, it, the book was just dead wrong, uh, and. There had been at least six previous studies that had contrary results, and um, uh, and when her data was finally reexamined after many years by other researchers, they found that her own raw data did not support her conclusions. Yet, and the time at the time the book came out, it was a bestseller. It was number one on the New York Times bestseller list. It was cited in uh, hundreds of academic papers, in judicial decisions, even by President Clinton in a speech he gave uh, in which he announced new laws relating to child support. And yet it was, it was just dead wrong. Uh, and yet it's, it still leads to the uh, impression among many people today, the belief among many people today, that women come out of uh, divorce impoverished and men come out rich. To which I ask a very simple question: um, After a divorce, uh, how often have you known a father or a man uh, who was living in a house that was bigger than what the wife was living in? Now it happens sometimes, but it, more often it happens that he's living in an apartment and she's living in the family house when there had been a family. If in the cases where there had been a family house. Um, it's different in among very poor people. Uh, these com- these discussions are complicated. Uh, generally, when you have poor people, both parties are poor. The man is poor, the woman is poor. Um, and uh, when they break up, they're both poor. They're both poorer than they were before. But actually, all, many of the studies that talk about the feminization of poverty neglect to count the fact that because she has the children typically, she's eligible for a whole lot of social safety net programs that he's not eligible for. So she's eligible for women's and infant nutrition. She's eligible for welfare. She's eligible for public housing. And you go down the list. And so the monetary value of those benefits can be quite large. And in terms of actual standard of living, even though on paper her income may be lower than his, they're both low, but she's lower, that's on paper, but in reality, she's got a, a substantially better standard of living. So, and that just doesn't get the, the monetary value of the social safety net just isn't counted when some people do these kinds of studies. So uh, I'm rambling a little bit here. I just wanted to say that it's not true that women are impoverished and men are enriched by divorce. Uh, and um, I... In it, fact, it's a much more complicated picture. 
It is more complicated, and it's probably more fa- more nearly fair now than it was 50 years ago because we mostly have no-fault divorces now. So there isn't a reason to blame one person and take wealth away from that person and give it to the other person. Most of the time people are, are saying, look, we don't want to get into the blame game. We just want to be divorced. So let's split our stuff up fairly, and hopefully neither one of us will be impoverished. Well, I think it depends on what state you're in, because the, every state has its own formula for how much child support has to be paid. I've, done the, I've run the numbers here in Massachusetts, where I live, and given the child support formula in Massachusetts, uh, throughout the middle class, uh, a, a woman who earns the same as a man if she's going to be the custodial parent and get the children, um, and, but the two of them earn the same amount, she will have a lifestyle that's about twice as rich as his. Um, and that's for a variety of reasons that are embedded in the law. Now, the story is different for poor people, and the story is also different for rich people. But most people are middle class, and in the middle class in Massachusetts, uh, the, the custodial parent will be considerably better off than the non-custodial parent, uh, unless the non-custodial parent earns three or four times more than the custodial parent. Interesting. Other states, it'll be a different story. You know, we could get into a long and fascinating discussion on the topic of child support, but (laughs) I think I want to take us back to the matter of shared parenting. So we now have research evidence from psychologists and we now have statements from organizations saying shared parenting is best. And it's going to take a little while to change the laws and change to educate the public and educate the judges. In the meantime, some people are just doing it. They're just agreeing. We will share in the raising of our kids, even if we don't like each other. We'll just do it. Yes. And it's easy to understand how that can work if the two houses are within bicycle distance of each other. You could live one week at mom's house and one week at dad's house. And if you forget your homework at the wrong house, it's nobody's going to have to drive too far to get things straightened out while you learn to be a more responsible child. Uh, What about situations that are more challenging? Let's say you have two parents who do both think shared parenting is a good idea. They both believe, I want each of us to be very much involved in our child's life. But one of them lives in Massachusetts and the other one gets a job at twice the salary he or she used to make in Texas. Do you you have ideas about how they can continue to share parenting? Well, let's break that scenario down a little bit. Let's dig a little deeper. So the question is, um, did they, uh, the question is, there are two two possible scenarios here. One scenario is that they, uh, right around the time of the divorce, maybe a little bit before, maybe a little bit after, one of them moved from Massachusetts to Texas. The other scenario is that they've been divorced for five years, They're, they've been sharing the parenting, and now one of them decides to go to Texas. So those are different scenarios. Which one should we talk about? Let's try both, one at a time. <laughs> okay, so let's take the first one where 
Uh, one of them has it in mind to move to Texas from Massachusetts around the time of the divorce. So suppose that the public understood that what the court was highly likely to do was to assign shared parenting, okay? Uh, if that were the expectation, right now the expectation is one of them is going to be a custodial parent, the other is going to be an every-other-weekend parent, because that's what the courts are doing in about mm, 83% of the time these days. So, but if the expectation were different, and it's going to be, gee, it's going to be somewhere around 50-50, maybe it'll be 40-60, might even be 35-65, but it's going to be a lot of sharing of the parenting time. If that's what they're expecting to happen in court, nobody's going to move to, to Texas because they're going to be saying, boy, I'm, I'm going to be made to fly back and forth all the time, and my poor child is going to have to fly back and forth all the time too. So the, once the expectations change, people don't move far away. Now, the second scenario, so in other words, the, the, what the law causes people to expect will affect their behavior. And in this case, people will say, gee, I, want, I wish I could go to Texas, but, you know, the only way we can do shared parenting, and that's what the court's going to demand of us, is if I stay here. Um, now, in the other scenario, they've been doing shared parenting for five years, and now one of them wants to get a job paying lots more money in Texas. My response to that is, unless they are starving, you know, if they're way below the poverty line or something, that's another story. But in the middle class or above, uh, if they want to go to Texas, fine, but they can't take the children with them. They cannot force the other parent to become an absentee parent by taking them, the children with them to Texas. And now, this is very controversial. Some people will say, well, there's a constitutional right to travel. And my answer is yes, there's a constitutional right to travel, but there's not a constitutional right necessarily to take your kids with you and deprive the children of the other parent. Secondly, and I think the more cogent and more important argument is this. Yes, it's enticing to go get that better salary in Texas, but we make many, many sacrifices for our children. We are expected to make sacrifices for our children. We are expected to be up at 3 in the morning when they're running a fever and they're vomiting. We are expected to go to their school play even if we hate plays. That's part of what we are expected to do as parents. We are expected to sacrifice, and one of the sacrifices is, I'm sorry, you, can't, you just can't go to Texas and take them with you. you you're going to have to wait another 10 years, then go get the well-paying job. Okay, I'm going to act like a mediator here and throw in one more possibility that this, these parents could consider having shared parenting for five years. One of them now has the opportunity to make twice as much money if only he or she will go to Texas. They could talk with each other about maybe moving everybody to Texas. They could, uh, but there aren't that many divorced couples who uh, are going to be able to work that out. I think it's great if they could. If, if you have 20-year-olds and they're, they're really not very settled in their lives and, and they're divorced now, I could see 20-year-olds saying, yeah, we'll both go to Texas, and, and, and the, the second parent saying, yeah, I'll, I'll find a way to make a living there. But if they're 40-year-olds, you know, they're embedded in a career. Uh, they've got a, a long-time job in a particular company. They're not sure what their job prospects are going to be. They don't have any friends their family is here. Yeah, and of course the children's schools are here, the children's friends are here, and right. so on. That's right. Yeah. So I think that's a tough, tough one. I wish yeah. it could be that way, but I, I don't think it's very realistic for any but the youngest divorced parents. Okay. 
Well, we're going to have to bring this really interesting conversation to an end now. I want to thank you very much, Dr. Holstein, for talking with us on Family Matters. NationalParentsOrganization.org Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow.